Well, good morning. Um, it's not happened yet. <laughs> Amen. You know, um, kind of like the rich young ruler, we're all kind of looking like for that one upgrade sometime that's going to fix everything um, in our lives. Maybe the new, next bit of technology, maybe that next seminar, that next uh, church thing, that next worship experience. Um, there's something we feel we lack as a people, and uh, uh, that's kind of why I created that, because it seems like we may upgrade ourselves out of existence, <laughs> you know, with this, this new technology, and if we've not met yet, my name is Ken, and I am still the pastor here, and <laughs> the text Mike read earlier is one of my favorite stories in the Gospels, and our message today is letting go to go. You know, for me, letting go and trusting in God's grace can sometimes be challenging. I like to be in control, but the reality is I'm not. And I often try to fix problems myself, um, but the truth is there are problems in life that I just can't fix and solve myself. And I like to do things my way, but this often leads me away from God and creates brokenness in my life. And I, and I believe we all struggle in this same manner. We like to feel as if we're in control of our lives and, and we prefer to solve our own problems without asking anybody for any help. And we, we want to do things our way. And we live in a world right now that tells us you can have it your way. Today, many believe that our science or, or AI can fix all of the world's problems. And... That if you're smart enough and if you're wealthy enough, you can then, then shape your life however you want it to be. There's no need for a God. We, we can become our own gods. And we can find other gods like AI to serve us. You know, this AI technology is poised to change the world for all of us in the next couple of years. It will allow many people to create their own gods that will offer them supposedly more leisure time, instant knowledge, instant entertainment. You want a uh, conflict-free relationship? Just have an AI relationship with a robot that will only say pleasant things to you all the time, never make any demands of you. You can even turn her off when you're, not, when you're watching the game and, and you don't want to be disturbed. You know, I, I must confess, early on in my marriage, I once tried to mute my wife with the TV remote. And when the swelling came down off of my eyes a week later, I realized that that was a bad idea. <laughs> you know, trying to perfect our world with AI gods might turn out, friends, to be a really bad idea. <laughs> right? As the video shows. Uh, true life. The life we truly desire will not be found in perfecting our technology to keep us healthier and wealthier and entertained. Our human effort alone does not work because we'll keep trying to create or keep trying to create to fix our problems and create new problems as we solve those existing problems. You know, companies are aiming to replace inefficient employees for ones that can work 24-7 and don't talk back and, and don't require a salary. And so if, if, if what they're saying is true, and 50% of the workforce could be displaced. You know, companies are seeking 
ways for their profits to soar. They, they fix the problem of being profitable. But it creates another issue. Who's going to buy their products? Think about it. If all of our income goes away. People worry about a, a Terminator scenario with AI, you know, where the robots take over and, and kill us all when they achieve consciousness. But the, the reality is we're likely to bring our own destruction way before that ever happens. Our need to be our own gods in control of our lives and our world will lead to chaos as we try so hard to perfect ourselves and make our own utopia here. Today's text is about a man who was trying or had created his own utopia without God. It looked to everyone like he was doing good. Yet it was really devastating to real life, the life God offers us in relationship with him. So I want you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 18, starting in verse 18, and see what Jesus says about us trying to perfect our lives ourselves. And in verse 18, it says, the ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The man in the text is quite remarkable by both secular and religious standards. He was young. He was serving as a ruler of a synagogue at a young age. He, he was vo- well-versed in social graces. The other scriptures say he came and he knelt before Jesus. He, he knew the right religious postures. He, he, he believed in eternal life, which many rulers didn't because they were Sanhedrin, but he had the right doctrine. He believed in eternal life, and he was genuinely interested in attaining it. He was morally upright. He was the epitome of success in the eyes of his community. His wealth and leadership skills made him a prominent figure. His intelligence set him apart from a young age, kind of like some of our tech leaders today. He was educated, and and he was intelligent. He knew just what to say to win other people over. His, His confidence was palatable, but it was rooted in his own abilities. And in essence, he was the kind of person everyone looked up to and, and, and wanted to be. They, they wanted his worldly success and his religious devotion. In verse 19, Jesus asked him a simple question. Why do you call me good? Prompting the man to, to reflect on his life and on, on his own words. Because then Jesus clarifies and says, no one is good except God alone. You know, as a Pharisee or maybe the member of the Sadhguru, the man would have been well-versed in the scriptures. And he would have understood that only God is truly perfect, truly good. And, and, And yet, much like the Pharisee in Jesus' parable before this, the Pharisee and the tax collector, he practiced kind of a, a relative morality that our morality is, is based on how we compare to other humans rather than how we measure up to God. And, and when we compare ourselves to others, we might appear to everybody and even ourselves quite virtuous. But when we compare ourselves to God, we all fall short. And, and, and this tendency isn't exclusive to any particular belief system. Whether you're an atheist or an agnostic or identify as a Christian, we can all fall into the trap of believing 
that we are the standard or the judge of what is good. Psalm 14, 1 through 3 says, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable needs, deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together, they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. That's the word of God. People often categorize other people as either good or bad. See, atheists might consider themselves intellectually superior to religious individuals. Those are the bad ones. While religious people may see themselves as more moral than atheists. However, the truth is universal that the Bible does not speak in terms of good and bad people concerning their morality. That's, That's not the point of the Bible. The Bible instead divides people into two groups. Those who are condemned and those who are redeemed by grace. Those who are condemned and those who are redeemed by God's grace. And returning to the man's question, what must I do? Isn't that a question of morality? What, what must I do? It reveals an underlying security. Despite this man being an exemplary human being, he knew internally that he fell short of God's holiness. In in Isaiah 64, 6, it reminds us of this very fact that we all know. We have all become ones. uh, we, We all become like one who's unclean. And all of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf. We're all dying. And our iniquities, like the wind, just takes us away. You know, Isaiah is using a vivid picture, a metaphor that his audience would find compelling. That that we are like a polluted garment, something defiled, something acceptable, unacceptable to God. This polluted garment he's referring to is, is, is quite likely a cloth used for a woman who is menstruating. Now, friends, this is, this is very graphic language that even the best of our righteousness is like a used maxi pad to God. It, it doesn't matter how clean it is, how, how much it appears clean. It's still unacceptable because it's sin-stained. The harsh reality is that No religious sacrifice or good work we could offer is acceptable to God because according to his word, we are all polluted, like a polluted garment. The the best person you know, perhaps the one that right now you're trying to emulate. The the Bible says that apart from Christ, they they are polluted or, or defiled. You know, even I, AI, will be defiled. You know why? We made it. You know, I was chatting with ChatGBT about kind of this concept and getting some feedback, and, and, and it says, well, and I asked, are, are, are you sentient? Are you alive? It says, no, no, that's, that, that hasn't happened. I'm a learning language model, and that's impossible. And then I had to say, well, the, the rest of the scripture says, yeah, with man, with us, it's impossible for you to have the right code. But with God, all things are possible. 
right? So maybe there's even hope for AI. Because, right, garbage in, garbage out. We're putting the garbage in right now. What are we going to get? Many people believe their religion, whatever it is, makes them better human beings. And while it might make them better in some ways, they're still not acceptable to God. This man, from a human perspective, is good, exceptionally so. And he knows it. And that's precisely what will be his downfall. It's why he poses the question to Jesus. He believes he can prove himself just enough to become acceptable to God. So Jesus, the light of the world, brings in the the, the bright light of truth into this man, revealing his stain and his pollution. Jesus says, you know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. And by his status in the community, it's obvious he knows the commandments. I'm sure he had taught them to others. And I, and I bet you he was an example of keeping him. And in, in verse 21, the young man declares, I have kept all these from my youth. Now, I, I want you to pause for a moment and think about this. How many of you could say you've never told a lie? Okay, uh, ever. How many have always honored their parents, never forgot a birthday, never lied to them, never talked back in disrespect, never forgotten their birthday? Anybody? Um, maybe some of you feel, though, like you're like the young man. And, and it's worth noting that Jesus, who, if God knows all, doesn't dispute his claim. He doesn't say, come on. Really? You know, this man could probably say, like most people here today, I've never committed adultery or I never killed no one. And because of that, many people, both atheists and Christians, think, I'm good. I'm good. God couldn't condemn me. I'm good. But they, have they considered Jesus' Sermon on the mountain? where he clarifies the demand of the law? Jesus said this there. Have you, have you heard it was said that those of old, you shall not murder? And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with this brother will be liable to judgment. So that's the intent of the heart. It's also defiling. And so for those of you who say that, oh, I've never murdered anybody, and, and, and you feel like, I'm good? Have you ever thought, I'm so angry I could just kill them? Have you ever called somebody an idiot or a, a, a fool driving in traffic, maybe on the way here this morning? Have you ever harbored resentment at your spouse or the person sitting behind you in church and then still tried to come and make an offering to God? That's defiled. Anybody get a little polluted here on the way driving? Is the maxi pad of your soul really that clean? Even if the person that you offend forgives you, does that make you acceptable to God? 
And, and for those that believe that they've never committed adultery, did you catch this part of Jesus' sermon in Matthew 5? You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Oh, sure. You've never slept with someone else's spouse. But have you ever fantasized about that romantic lead in the Netflix rom-com that you're watching? Have you ever watched a a bit of pornography and, and wished your partner could do some of those things? Is your sexual partner someone you're not biblically married to? And if that's not the case, do you watch a a lot of sexual content on TV? Let me put that another way. Do you watch TV? (laughs) Do you scroll through social media to, uh, uh, you know, to see attractive people dancing on TikTok and other things? Could it be that your eyes and your mind are a bit polluted, making you a stained maxi pad to God? Verse 21 is my favorite verse. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Now, that's actually not in the Luke version. That's in the Mark version. But I had to throw it in. How can a holy God, who knows everything about this man, Look upon him with love. Scripture tells us, you who are of pure eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? See, that's a, that moral comparison. Or consider Psalm 34, 15, and 16. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ear toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Jesus is God. How could he look upon this man with love if this man was right in what he was saying, trying to deceive him? The truth is, I believe this young man had lived an exemplary life in how he had treated other people. And I believe many of you have done the same thing as well. You strive to live pure lives, and that's commendable. Keep it up. But don't think like he does, that your righteousness, whatever it is, makes it you acceptable to God. See, Jesus is performing heart surgery on this moral man. He only questions him first on five of the Ten Commandments, those, those dealing with relationship with other people. And in that case, this man was very moral. I, I, I know many very moral atheists and religious people. And maybe you're one of them. But remember, there are ten commandments, not just five. And the other five deal with our relationship to God. This man's honesty and good treatment of others likely contributed to his success in life. Perhaps his honor towards his parents led to a substantial inheritance for him. You know, there are worldly advantages to living morally. It can protect your reputation so that you're more successful. It can protect your finances and keep you out of debt. And it can even keep you out of jail. So this man had done what would have made him admired and successful in the world. But after Jesus looked at him with love, Jesus said, one thing you still lack. 
And even though God loved this young man who was a pretty moral human being, he still lacked one thing. There was an imperfection, one, one drop of blood on his maxi pad. And that drop of blood defiled him completely. Now, Jesus delivers a blow to this young man who thought he had it all together, who, who believed he was just one good deed, one good deed away from entering the kingdom of God. Jesus looks at him and says, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasures in heaven and, and then come follow me. Yes, he was moral. He, he was religious. He was financially responsible. He was even a, a leader among men. No one could find fight, fault with him in any of that. But he had another issue. He had an idol. The first commandment in Exodus 20 states, you shall have no other God before me. This man was re religious. He, he, he was a ruler of a synagogue. He, he even taught that God comes first in your life. But, but where was his heart? You see now. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Why was he sad? Not because he felt guilty, friends, but because he realized he had another God more important to him than the Lord. He had broken the first and most important commandment of all. And that was all despite his religious appearance and good doctrine and financial success. He really worshipped his own achievement. And faced with giving up his wealth, he realized he had also broken the second commandment. You shall not make for yourself a carved image and bow down and worship it. The coins, maybe even in his money bag there, bearing Caesar's name, were an image that had become his idol. It didn't matter that he looked at it and said all the right things on Sabbath. What he truly had been obeying was his money and his success. All those platitudes he offered in the synagogue and all the support he offered at the synagogue were actually violations of the third commandment. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. It was all empty. It was in vain. His, his spiritual state was far from clean. And when the text says he was sad, friends, this is an understatement. The term suggests sorrow to despair to, to the point of death. It, it's the same Greek word that Jesus used to describe the night before his crucifixion when he told his disciples as he's bleeding and sweating blood or you know, sweating drops of blood, he says, my soul is sorrowful even to death. Same word. This man was devastated. He was convicted by his own sinfulness against a holy God. He realized that he was spiritually polluted. And Luke's gospel doesn't tell us what happens to him. Mark's does. He, he says he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. He, he, he walked away from the God he said he served, the, the God who loved him, and it was about to prove that by dying for him. What, what both Luke's and Mark's 
accounts note is his wealth. Almost, almost as if to justify his sorrow. Like, well, of course, of course he's sorrowful. Of course he had an excuse. He, he had a big 401k. He had invested in all the blue chip stock. He, he had a really big job at the synagogue. How, how could he follow Jesus? I mean, I, I understand. Uh, he, he makes so much more per hour than all those riffraff disciples of Jesus. How, how could he follow him? Now, in Luke's version, the focus is not on whether the man walked away or not. That's not the focus. The focus is on the effect on the other disciples that witnessed this exchange. It's like Jesus only highlighted the man's sadness to to reveal the man's idolatrous and defiled heart, not only just to him, but to everyone in the room. This man had made a bad investment of his life, the life that God had given him. He, he was focused on temporal things, not on the eternal. And because of it, he would be bankrupt for all eternity if his heart would not change. It was right, friends. It was good that his heart was sad. Some people say, I don't, I don't like reading the Bible because it makes me feel bad. Then, friends, I want to tell you, you're doing it right. You're doing it right. He, this man had no justification to feel other than sad. James, Jesus' brother, said this, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you, and you will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Friends, do you think this issue only affects the very rich, the Elon Musk, the Bill Gates? Is, is, that, is that where this issue affects? If, if you do, you're very mistaken. The man's wealthy, yes. But the wealth was not his problem. His problem was where his heart was. What he truly worshipped. Worship isn't about singing songs, Friends, it's, it's about obedience to what we trust, what we really trust. And our money says on it, in God we trust. But many of us trust that money more than we trust God. And we fall into idolatry and become spiritually defiled because of that. And Jesus, seeing the man sadness, said, how difficult is it for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples, they're all shocked by Jesus' word. But friends, that's because materialism is a universal issue, a cancer that's growing in every church. Think you're not materialistic? Do you you get anxious when the cost of living rises? Isn't our God still in control? Doesn't his word say rejoice? Again, I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be evident to all. The Lord is at hand. 
Isn't God still in control? The Bible tells us to rejoice. And if you're not, what are you really worshiping? Do you fret when your 401k shrinks? If so, who's your God? Seems like your heart might be polluted by an idol. You might argue, I'm just being practical, Pastor Ken. Have you seen the price of groceries? I know. I've eaten. Probably more than I should. I also haven't had a raise since before the pandemic, I think. Right? Like many of us. But if you can't be content with what God has provided you, what are you worshiping? What are we worshiping? The Apostle Paul said, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. See, Paul learned to be content in any situation. So if we're worshiping the same God, so can we. Friends, you don't have to be rich to have an idolatrous heart. Our hearts are idol factories. Consider what Jesus is offering to this man. Not loss, but gain. Eternal life. What's that worth? A close relationship with the Almighty on a daily basis. A God who can create something from absolutely nothing. Create the whole universe that way. Why are we worried about $100 or even a billion dollars in comparison with knowing him? One thing that keeps this man from God's kingdom, or the thing that keeps this man from God's kingdom, wasn't some heinous crime. He wasn't uh, a mass murderer. He wasn't a, a, a school shooter. He, he, he wasn't... You know, all the things that we think are a heinous crime. Friends, it was his idolatrous heart that made him unacceptable to God. And friends, that's a lesson to all of us. And those who heard it said, then who can be saved? Maybe you're thinking that. Who who can be saved? Because everyone else there, those that weren't, successful or wealthy or beautiful realized they were in trouble in their culture a wealthy man like this was considered favored by god and they saw no fault in him at all he was moral he was a good leader he was accomplished at a young age his future was so bright he had to wear shades he only lacked one thing while many of them knew they lacked much much more Some there were not as morally upright. They had harbored hatred in their hearts towards other people. They they had cheated on their spouses. They were estranged from their parents. They were not even talking to them, yet they rationalized it. And, you know, they said, oh, I haven't killed nobody. I'm okay with God. I work hard. That should count for something. But when they heard Jesus' word, they were devastated. Absolutely devastated. If it was hard for a rich moral man, then for them it would seem impossible. And they cry out, who can be saved? So now Jesus had everyone's attention. Everybody in the room's attention. Which was his aim. And I hope he has your attention today too. Look what he says. But he said, What is impossible 
with man. What is impossible with man is possible with God. Friends, it's not about being rich or poor. It's about where your heart is. In the next chapter, we'll meet a a, a man, a tax collector, that everyone would say is destined for hell because his sins were so culturally offensive. But when this tax collector repents and he meets Jesus, he's saying, behold, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And he does this before Jesus even asks him to. This same tax collector is a very wealthy man as well. He, he willingly declares the intention of his heart. He, he's so eager to worship this God that he runs without dignity and climbs up a sycamore tree to see what he could see, see, see. Spent too much time in children's ministry. But anyways, he calls Jesus Lord. While the rich man merely calls him good teacher. Friends, there's a world of difference between seeing Jesus as a great teacher who can make you successful and who can improve you a little and recognizing him as the God who created you and can reshape you. Huge difference. The former might help you acquire more idols in your life, but the latter grants you eternal life through his grace. Yes, it's hard for a rich man or any man or woman to enter heaven. But friends, it's not impossible. Why? Because with God, all things are possible. He can give you a new heart, one that worships and obeys him, one that's not tainted by covetousness, the want for more that leads to sin. Today, friends, we all fall short. We're all tainted. We're all camels, friends, that can't make it through this tiny needle. You know, theologians try to do funny things like there was this gate in Jerusalem where the camel would get on his knees and try to shuffle, and it was hard. That's not what Jesus is talking about. He's, he's giving a ridiculous example, a big camel. Like, you're, you're not a tall person, so could you fit through the eye of a needle? No. It's obvious, right? It's obvious what Jesus is saying. It's impossible. But friends, with God, all things are possible for those who believe. Those who truly worship and trust in God over the idols of this world. And Peter said, see, we have left our homes and followed you. See how devastated they are at this revelation? Peter's freaking out. He's like, see, we, we've left our homes and we followed you, Jesus. He's, he's trying to justify himself, saying, look what I've given up for you, Jesus. Have I, I paid a big enough cost? And this is because Peter still doesn't understand the cost of his own sin to God. He, but he, the other thing about Peter is, though, is he's not tied to the things of this world. Because when he had his best and most profitable day fishing with Jesus, and Jesus told him, do not fear and follow me, he did it. 
He gave up his business. He, he gave up the fish, and immediately he followed him. That's faith. That, that's faith in the right God and not in an idol. He didn't depart from God. Instead, in the presence of God, he understood how polluted he was, and he asked for God to depart from Luke or from him. In Luke 5, he is recorded as saying, he fell down at Jesus' face saying, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. He understood his pollution. If we realize that only God is good, we will understand that we are polluted rags that are dependent completely upon him for our salvation. And, and Jesus reassures all of those following saying, truly, I say to you, there's no one who has left house or, or wife or, or brother or parent or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. And so Jesus is reassuring his followers about his love for them, that he looks upon them with love. And because of that, he's going to make them clean. Because when things got tough, they didn't walk away. Now, it's not about the sacrifices they made for him. It's that they believe in the guarantee of the Father's goodness to them. Even though that they are polluted rags by faith in his goodness, they trust that they will be made clean. You've got to be really committed to believe that. I do. I look at my sinfulness. Ah, oh, Lord, how are you going to do it? How are you going to get me through that eye of the needle? Those desperate moments, just like when I am confronted that it's more than one thing, how are you going to do it? You have to believe that he is ultimately good enough to do it and, and leave your idols and, and follow him. Yeah, it could be your house, it could be your wife, it could be your brother, it could be your parents, it could be even your children. See, good idols, the things that most people consider good, that can keep you from trusting and following him. It, 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 you, you could fear that you could possibly lose your, their affection because you are committed to serving and following him and his gospel. But he's saying if you have that kind of faith, you will receive more than you can imagine in this life. And in the next, this is a warning that, that is saying that following him takes a total commitment. Believing in Jesus is not just a, a one thing you lack. And if you add it, a little religion, a, a little good works, you're fine. That kind of faith, or what I call being a fan in Jesus, will not save you. What did Jesus say in Luke 9? about the commitment to follow him. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. You can't hold on to your life and the idols of this world and me at the same time. The success and the money don't fit through that eye of the needle. You need to surrender your idols to follow Jesus. It's a narrow gate. Nothing is going through but you. You better not be holding on to material things as the things you trust in. And friends, this is not a call to communism. 
That you all got to go out there and sell your stuff and give it away for the greater good of humanity. That, that would just be an improvement, right? This is a call to devote your whole heart to God and let go of the idols of life that only will be eaten by moth and rust. No matter how beautiful they were when you bought them. Jesus is our God. He gave it all to obey his Father's will. He sweated blood over it. Giving up his life made him sad. He mourned it. But he said to his Father, Not my will, but yours be done. And he was beaten and he was mocked, and yet he still walked obediently to his death on a cross. And Jesus was innocent. He was not a polluted garment. There there was no sin in him. But his innocence cleansed us. And, And we defiled him with our sin. And the proof is that he died. An immortal being died because our sin stained him from God. That's why he called out on the cross, God, God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because God could no longer look upon his own son because all our sin upon him. But because of who he was, even the grave could not defile him for long. On the third day, he walked out alive again and forever. And he is the one who said through the prophet Isaiah, come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Today, friends, I I, I fear that there are a lot of rich young rulers in the church today. Trusting in the wrong thing for eternal life. I see very few like Peter admitting that they are polluted and repenting and turning and following him, no matter what the cost is. Jesus doesn't really own their time or their money. Just let AI look at their calendar and their checkbook. See, those are offerings they make unto themselves, unto their fears, instead of following him. They're religious. They sing songs. They even lead worship and, and um, uh, lead in church. And, and some look like they have it all together morally. But one thing they lack, a new heart that's committing to following him as God when he calls, even when it's difficult. And instead, what they do is they turn away in sadness. And so their faith is joyless because they worship the wrong God, a dead God, and stay polluted and become more polluted by the world. Not not really believing in the impossible thing that the God who created the universe, the thing that he did to remove all the stain of their sin, and, and that even in the midst of their sin, as Romans 5, 8 says, that while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. 
that even in the midst of sin, he looked at them with love and he forgave them. He did the impossible thing to make them clean. Friends, today, are you ready to repent? To, to admit the truth of your pollution? That you're lacking at least one thing? No matter how cleaned up you look to everybody else here? If so, then turn and follow him. Obey him and his words, because he has the words to eternal life, and be clean. If you say you don't have time to read his word or study his word with his people in, in life groups or, or share his word as a witness, but then do you obey the God of your fears, the God of your money, the God of your calendar, your free time? If so, are, are, are you any different from this young man who refused to follow? Today, God is offering a new heart. If you'll simply admit to yourself the pollution of your own sin and believe in his goodness as God and not your own and make him, Jesus, your Lord, your God, whom you obey. I, I pray that the Holy Spirit right now is devastating you with conviction. And I pray that, that you may not walk away today sad like this man, but that you walk away in joy and peace, knowing that the God of the universe looks upon you in love. And it's not about what you do, but it's about what he has done for you. Let us pray. Father, I thank you for your word. It hurts sometimes, but it's always true. And it's healing. You can't heal a wound if you say it's not there. It sometimes needs to be lanced so the infection of materialism can come out that we might clearly follow you. Follow your Holy Spirit. And so I pray right now that the Holy Spirit is convicting people of their pollution. The pollution of their sin. The pollution of their idolatrous heart. I also pray that you're convicting them of how good you are. That despite all that, you look upon them with love. And the offer to follow is still there. I, I don't know what happened to this young man, but my hope, and it's his heart, is that he got home so sad and came back. Came back and, and, and committed to follow. We don't know, Lord, but, but Lord, that's our hope, and I know that that's your hope. And, and so I pray that, 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 that people here today would be so convicted that you're worthy to follow. And Lord, I pray they do it now. They feel a conviction to do it right now, like Peter. Immediately. I'm a sinful man. I have no hope. And, and that they hear those words, do not fear. I will teach you to be a fisher of men. That they just come and follow you wherever they are right now. Father, I, I just pray they make that commitment in their heart. That whatever, whatever you're going, wherever you're taking them, you're just going. 
because you're better than anything else. You have the words of eternal life. That one thing they're searching for only promises death, but, but you promise them eternal life. And so may they turn to you right now and receive it. Lord, I thank you for the work you're doing in people's hearts right now. May they be changed forever. Give them a new heart, a new spirit within them. One that seeks to obey you. One that seeks to follow you. Do a mighty work today in this church and in our hearts. In Jesus' name, I pray. 